Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Ryan Hummel and Mindy McGrath to talk about what's trending now. Mindy, what headlines have you been following lately? There have been quite a few headlines, but my eyes have really been on the judicial activity in the last few weeks surrounding the medication abortion drug, mifepristone. Early in April, we saw this federal judge from Texas that ruled on suspending the FDA's approval to the drug. And while it's one of two drugs that's used together to initiate a medical abortion, it really made headline news because we've seen quite a few of these judicial rulings coming out of Texas all aimed at the Affordable Care Act and some aimed more specifically at at reproduction health. In this particular ruling, a lawsuit coming out of Texas argued that the FDA had basically improperly approved the pill in 2000 and that mifepristone was unsafe. And so even though the FDA has tons of, of data now on the safety and the efficacy of the drug, the judge still ruled in favor of, of this Texas lawsuit. And while the agency has really strongly disputed these claims, pointing to all of those studies that I just mentioned that show that there are very, very few serious complications and that less than 1% of patients actually need hospitalization, this initial ruling to me really starts to I think build that threat that's out there that the sale of this medication is going to be banned across the country. And conversely, what happened at about the same time is that there was another ruling out of the Washington area that ordered the FDA to maintain access to mifepristone in 17 states and the District of Columbia and wanted to protect and expand access to the medication. So two rulings doing opposite things and putting the FDA really in a bind. Yeah, it's certainly been a wild ride. And I think one that unfortunately we're just getting started on the Supreme Court initially granted a pause on the lower court ruling that sought to limit the access to the pill, given the confusing direction that you just talked about by these two diametrically, it seems, opposed courts. But as of April 21st, they said that access to the pill should continue while court cases play out, rejecting the Texas District's court call to remove the drug's approval. This probably isn't the last thing we're going to hear from the justices. After the Fifth Circuit hears the appeal, the case is likely to make its way all the way back up to the Supreme Court. But even beyond that, GenBio Pro sued the FDA to keep its generic version of mifepristone on the market and sued the state of West Virginia over its state abortion restrictions, stating that the federal regulations allowing the use of this drug should really prevail over the state law. So I think we are only going to continue to see more and more judiciary action when it comes to medication abortion sort of at all levels of the courts across the land and from multiple different angles, whether it be from anti-abortion activist groups or even manufacturers themselves. And Jen, I think, I mean, you hit on a key point beyond this case and how it starts to play itself out. I do think there is something that's really unprecedented about the ruling in the case coming out of Texas 
that really challenged the FDA's authority, right? And kind of questioning the FDA's ability to actually take data and clinical information and make decisions, right, on whether to approve and or not approve a drug that comes to market. And so I think even broader than this, this is the first time we're really seeing the agency challenged about the decisions they make. And I think it really calls into question the FDA's ability, right, to consider safety, efficacy, and the interpretation of the term illness, which ultimately is part of this case that was challenged in Texas. So I think we'll we'll obviously have to wait and see how this plays out. But I do think like this starts to broaden how maybe some manufacturers and even the agency itself consider some of the pathways that it has implemented over the course of the last couple of years, especially some of the accelerated pathway, and what that may mean if a court actually rules differently. Because agencies like the FDA cannot turn on a dime either to just change the way that they think they review clinical information they changed their decision-making in that process. So I think this could have some really outsized consequences if this ruling holds up and makes its way to the Supreme Court. But I've got to think that that manufacturers right now are also just wondering, where do you go if you're bringing a new drug to market? Which pathway do you take? Because if something could be challenged like this at a later date, it is a risk that needs to be considered. Your point, Mindy, the Texas case specifically did scrutinize that subpart H and the FDA's accelerated approval pathway. Historically, we've seen this sort of activism when it comes to anti-abortion in the courts really go after whether or not states can prohibit abortion, the federal law of the land, at which time. But this is the first we've really seen the actual agency, right, of the FDA come into question. Hi, Jen and Mindy. There's another blockbuster deal that went down that's probably worth a lot more time than we have. And it's the idea of Behemoth Kaiser Permanente announcing it's acquiring Geisinger Health. And although this may be an integration, the announcement is around Geisinger operating independently under a new subsidiary of Kaiser that's called Ryzen Health that is headquartered in Washington, D.C. and is going to be led by current Geisinger president and CEO, J. Wan Ryu. It kind of made shockwaves up and down the East Coast because these are two kind of behemoths in the value-based care world. And it's interesting because I think it somehow from a public perspective came out of nowhere. But if you look deeper into Geisinger and actually Kaiser as well, it's been a rough year or a couple of years for health systems and Kaiser and Geisinger were not uh, immune to some of the issues financially. And so Geisinger specifically, after having a pretty long run of, of somewhat healthy profit margins, really plummeted in calendar year 22. So it was an opportunity for Kaiser to come in. And it's interesting because when you look at the two behemoths, and it's all relatively speaking, I think Kaiser has or covers around 12.5 million patients. Geisinger is a little over a million. It's going to be an interesting partnership. When you talk to some folks in the industry, they are somewhat pessimistic because Kaiser has before tried to utilize their closed network model in other markets of care management. It really hasn't scaled well, but they are a little bit more optimistic about this Geisinger because Geisinger has its own track record of developing really new and nouveau VBC initiatives. And they have some notable achievements in value-based care models and remote patient monitoring, navigator patient engagement that I think 
Kaiser would be very interested in adopting and utilizing. So Ryzen will grow its impact and acquire and connect a portfolio. They've been very open about the fact that this is not a one and done premise that Ryzen is looking elsewhere to combine and consolidate. So there's lots to be talked about. And Mindy, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this whole blockbuster deal that went down. Yeah, I, I mean, I think initially I was really surprised about it. And then as I started thinking about the Geisinger model, the Kaiser model, there are a lot of like-minded or like maybe commonality between how those systems run. This kind of tease up Ryzen, right? To go out and acquire, maybe add five or six more health systems to this arrangement, maybe even more. You know, the other thing that was on my mind and, and we've talked about this before is like, does this become perhaps the model that is used to then almost like outsource what's worked well to other systems? So maybe not all of them come into Ryzen. Maybe it becomes like almost like a VBC as a service type of model as well. I, I mean, we're, we're kicking around what could be, but I definitely think it had us really talking about it last week to try to figure out and understand like what was the play here? What were the common elements that would drive these two organizations together? And then ultimately, what's the intention? And so that's what I find interesting is that you have one on one coast, right? You have Geisinger on the other coast. And now together, they're forming this, this rise in health organization. And so I guess the question is, what other systems become part of this? And is it going to be systems that have already accelerated or done things pretty well when it comes to value-based arrangements? I think that's a great point. And you think about, I mentioned that covered lives, it's something like 12 times the number that Kaiser covers over Geisinger. Kaiser Permanente has last check a little over 40 hospitals or around 40 hospitals, depending where you look, Geisinger has 10. So if you think about that scale, it enables a little bit more nimbleness from a Geisinger perspective. So you can understand why they formed this company. And you think about digging into, well, what makes Geisinger more attractive or attractive to partner with Kaiser other than the geographic expansion. But you think about the way that Geisinger was able to really achieve some notable achievements in patient engagement over the years. They have a really well-known proven health navigator that's best in class. They really have doubled down on home care. They launched Geisinger at Home, which is a home-based care program to manage patients with real complex chronic conditions that's been well noted and written about. They dabble in bundled payment models. They were an early adopter to that. You think about other operational things that Geisinger has, has delved into publicly around global budgeting, and they're really focused on data-driven care. And so you think about, you know, maybe five of those real newer models of care on top of value-based care. And it seems more appetizing and interesting than at first glance. More remains to be seen, of course. And I think partnership and affiliation models like this do not make value-based care any easier. It's still going to be maybe an apple and oranges comparison for the time being. But I see some real, some real tongue and groove integration efforts that could go down with this. Yeah, and Ryan, what strikes me about some of the things that you just ticked off is the appetite for innovation has been, I think, of both organizations. When we talk about systems that have been ahead of the curve, maybe or setting the curve when it comes to innovation, I do think we, as an industry, have pointed to companies like Kaiser and Geisinger and Intermountain Health as those organizations that seem to have more of an outsized appetite 
to take on and test and learn from innovative ideas. So that seems to also be a common thread to me as we start to think about the the why behind that and like how does that set up Ryzen for where they go forward is this whole like, adoption that both organizations have had around innovative thinking and being willing to actually test it. One keynote that I don't want to lose sight of, when you look at the payer mix of the current Geisinger model, which is all public information, something like 40% of their population is in the Medicare category. And I'm guessing that's going to continue to grow. So as we talk about the growth and expansion of Medicare Advantage models and the way that Medicare Advantage programs can be successful and profitable, Geisinger's plan, I'm guessing, has similar pathways to profitability. And when 40% of your population is of Medicare age, puts you in a pretty good position to manage care efficiently and effectively. Another thing that's interesting, and I mentioned this already, Mindy and Jen, about the population that Geisinger manages, it's something like 1.2 million folks. 600,000 of those 1.2 million folks are, are under Geisinger's managed care membership. So I'm guessing part of this wave is going to be to help them close that gap because the more folks they can manage and the more data they have that they see, the better they will be able to manage their operation. So that, that's another kind of key stat that popped out when I was looking through some of the EMMA disclosures, which allows us to see a lot of details for non-for-profit hospitals. Ryan, you mentioned that this isn't the first time that Kaiser has tried a, a partnership strategy, sometimes with maybe not the best results. What do you think it will take for Kaiser and Geisinger to really be successful in this new partnership? We, we have seen consolidation and large academic medical centers and large health systems purchase other systems over the last decade. And sometimes they work really well right away. Sometimes they don't work. And sometimes they take a long time to manifest. One thing that I've noticed in local areas or even in national areas, the integration early days is so important. If you are going to figure out the value of integration, you better do it right away. You think and look about, for instance, we're, we're pretty close geographically to Geisinger. And you look at the fact that their, their total net revenue has gone up the last several years. Their operating margin has plummeted. So if I'm Ryzen or am I Kaiser or I'm in the integration team, one of the first things I look at is why is that happening? Now we know macro level, a lot of health systems have had that. I don't think I was expecting Geisinger's operating margins to plummet. So there is, there is many opportunities to look into the operation, to dig into ways of working. There's so much that we're going to see and uncover. And it's the things that we look at when we're dealing with our clients on a daily basis. Good question for you, Ryan. Is this truly an integration though? Because it sounds like they're not going to tuck Geisinger in. It's more like they they created this new company, right? I wonder if they take some of the practices or they leverage Kaiser's vast financial platform, right? To make the right types of investments in Geisinger. I don't know if it's truly an integration, but you know, it's still change, right? And that's the whole thing. And I think some of the key parts of this to make Ryzen health successful are going to be different ways of working an op model. Like what does that actually look like? Have they worked that out? Because we know health systems in general have had a really hard time over the last several years from a financial standpoint, but we've also talked, Ryan, about what is going on with so many healthcare industry organizations that are really kind of reframing their value in a changing system. And so, you know, that goes back to the things we've talked about when it comes to convergence. 
But I do think as we we look at Ryzen, some of the basic tenets of what you need to do to be a healthy organization always come back to those fundamentals, whether it's looking at your operating model, your service model, your practice model, focusing on things like your culture and systems, people, process. I mean, all of those things, right? Because this is still a change, whether it's an integration or not. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's integration with a lowercase i because they are coming together, Kaiser and Geisinger, through a vehicle that will probably allow them to get through the FTC. So it remains to be seen how integrated. One guess that is just a hypothesis, Mindy, is that they're calling it Ryzen to allow a more fluid and easy way through the Federal Trade Commission. And I have to wonder who else is out there thinking they might follow this model right? Because I think scale is starting to become part of the conversation at a much louder clip as health systems in some ways really struggle through the post-COVID era. It just seems like this is is something that the industry is going to keep an eye on, but I wonder where else are we going to see this type of activity popping up. Thanks, Mindy and Ryan, for taking us through these two very impactful stories. Definitely a lot to watch over the coming months and year. As always, we know the only constant in the healthcare industry is change. So I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.